Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Kat Moon, Director of Innovation and Design and Professor in the Program on Law and Innovation at Vanderbilt Law School. And we will be discussing her work on teaching legal problem solving. So welcome, Kat. Hey, Brian. <laughs> so it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I've followed you for a long time on Twitter now and always been really impressed by your thoughtful and reflective approach to legal pedagogy. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning from you today and hopefully um, developing ideas that I can use in, in my own teaching. And, uh, and so I wanted to start by just asking you if you could help me and my listeners better understand what is, what is legal problem solving as you conceptualize it and and what does that mean in terms of the your approach to to teaching that class well first it is an honor and pleasure to be here speaking with you brian so thank you for inviting me and um, i always enjoy the opportunity to share and engage and am hopeful that we learn from each other in this conversation so Oh, let's see. So legal problem solving um, is the name of the course. And initially that was suggested to me by someone who was helping me structure the course proposal so that it would be approved. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I'm, I'm familiar with that experience. Yeah, yeah. So I will just leave that right there. Um, the course was approved, and as time passed, I really started thinking about the name and have come to really embrace and love it uh, because from my perspective, it's given me the opportunity to use human-centered design as a lens to focus on different areas of what lawyers do and what law students do or should be doing. And eventually it led me to think about how I can help my students develop better problem solving skills in three primary facets. Um, And I will back up just a moment to say that I've, this is my second year of teaching the course before I returned to Vanderbilt to start teaching in the program on law and innovation I practiced law for 20 years. I'm a Vanderbilt grad as well, a a double door, as they say. I have two (laughs) degrees from Vanderbilt. Um, And so I bring my experience as a practicing attorney to that, along with some other um, kind of gravel roads that I went down that inform what I do now and how how I try to help students in my teaching. And so human-centered design is a lens. I help the students focus on three different things. Um, One is developing self-awareness and developing some intentionality about how they approach developing as a legal professional. I see this as really critical in navigating what is becoming an increasingly complex um, landscape for engaging in a legal practice with with so much change happening so quickly. Um, 
and not just from the technological perspective, though that definitely has incredible impact, not only in the work we do for clients, but in how we do our work. So it's, you know, we're in a period of rapid change. I think we're actually at an inflection point. And so giving students meaningful tools to understand themselves and really be focused and intentional on how they move forward in their professional development Mm. is very important to me. And I get incredible feedback from students that they are hungry for these tools. So we start off with that. I call that one of the pillars. Mm -hmm. And we do that for another reason as well, because human-centered design, a foundation of human-centered design is exercising cognitive empathy. And that is being able to see from the perspective of those who you seek to help. Mm. And to really step in the shoes of someone else, one must be fairly self-aware and have some understanding of our own biases and how that impacts our ability to see or not see from someone else's perspective. So self-awareness, we scaffold empathy on the self-awareness, and then the focus shifts Actually, the focus is kind of simultaneously happening on all three <laughs> things. But um, another area of focus for us is thinking about how we can be better legal problem solvers, how we best put ourselves in the shoes of clients to fully understand and therefore reach much better solutions with clients. Mm. And so we focus on the mindsets and tools and how it really does complement what I call the hammer of thinking like a lawyer. Mm. And I don't mean that pejoratively. As I tell my students, the hammer is why they are in law school and it's an incredibly important and valuable tool. Mm. However, it's not the only tool. And so I seek to supplement and complement that tool with the tools of human-centered design to better solve legal problems. So that is truly in doing legal work, the technical aspect of the work we do as lawyers. And then the third area of focus, the third pillar is on legal services delivery. So how, do, how are we delivering our work to clients? And this creates an opportunity for us to talk about how many people are not being served by current delivery models. And, you know, there are various numbers cited by various people. One number is the 4 billion people globally who have legal issues but have no access to help for those issues. Mm -hmm. um, in the U.S., a common cited statistic, commonly cited statistic is 80% of the people who have a legal problem never access a lawyer or someone within the legal system to get that help mm -hmm. for a whole host of reasons. Um, and you know, a fundamental issue with all of these problems, the legal services delivery model. So we also look at that um, from the context of how we can do better to serve better. And so, yeah, that's kind of an overview in wow. a rambling okay. sort of way. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is amazing. And it, it really speaks to a lot of my own kind of personal experience of kind of having feet in both the academic and practitioner's world yeah. over the course of the last 15 years or so. But before we talk more kind of granularly about that, I was wondering if, if you could say a little bit about 
human-centered design and what that okay. means. Sure. So when I refer to human-centered design, I encompass both mindsets, the hats we wear when we are doing work from a human-centered perspective, and tools and process. So it's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into it. Um, it's not neat and orderly. That's mm -hmm. part of the mindset. One of the mindsets is embracing ambiguity. But um, the mindsets to me are critical. And these are things that we focus on in every single class session and throughout every bit of work we do in legal problem solving. So we embrace, um, we embrace ambiguity. Um, we exercise humble curiosity. And that is going forth to learn new things constantly because we don't know what we don't know. And um, we seek to learn what we don't know, knowing that we will never know it all. Um, and this is a, sometimes a hard one for those who are trained to walk into a room and be the smartest. Um, so radical collaboration is another mindset of human centered design that's critical. And that is um, the fundamental belief, which is being increasingly supported by research that, when you bring a group of people who have cognitive diversity together to solve a problem, they get to a better solution more quickly. So it is the concept of working in a multidisciplinary way. And, you know, put very simply, you are going to get a better solution from a diverse group of people addressing a problem than if you just bring 10 lawyers around the table who are all trained to think of the problem in the same way. And it's not because they're not smart. It's because we're all trained to think in the same way. So the concept that when you bring cognitively diverse people who are trained to solve problems in different ways, you get a much richer um, solution. Wow. So um, there's that concept. And that um, is definitely something that is not typical in a legal setting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and actually is kind of a... Um, a challenge to make happen in my class, but I'll, I'll maybe have a chance to comment on that a little bit later. Um, so we have mindsets, which we wear throughout, which help us see the world and empathy being another mindset that um, we understand to truly solve another person's problem meaningfully. We have to um, intentionally put aside our own biases and awareness and do the best we can to step inside that person's shoes and see the world from their perspective. And I do want to note here that when I use the word empathy, I am referring to cognitive empathy. And I think this is an important distinction because there are forms of empathy that frankly can be very emotionally draining and, dam and damaging. Mm -hmm. And um, I think part of our job as counselors at law is, um, to definitely understand people's perspectives, but that doesn't mean that we own their feelings at the same time. Um, I just make that distinction because often when I have empathy conversations, um, there's an assumption that I'm suggesting that we must feel deeply everything that those we work with feel. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a different form of empathy. Um, so mindsets, um, there is, a process to human-centered design. So if you are going to engage in a project from a human-centered design perspective, um, a number of different groups have described it slightly differently. In my course, we use the process 
as identified essentially by the design firm IDEO, in part because Vanderbilt as an institution has an institution-wide program to bring human-centered design into the entire curriculum, and that program uses the IDEO framework. And so I, I chose that to be consistent with other things happening at Vanderbilt, and it works well. Basically, the process is the same people just use different words to describe different phases. So um, the process very quickly is to start from a position of empathy to try to understand the situation and the issue and the problems. Um, you move from there into a synthesis of all the information you gather. So it's, it's an empathy discovery phase. And you move from there into synthesis to try to make sense of all the data that you have gathered. From there, you move into an ideation or brainstorming stage, and the goal there is to understanding the situation from the standpoint of the people um, experiencing the problem or challenge. Um, you, you have a session of brainstorming that is as free-thinking and non-judgmental and unconstrained as possible to try to come up with as many possible solutions. Um, from there, you essentially decide what to prototype, what makes sense, what's going to work given the constraints of the particular situation, and develop a prototype. You, you make something and put it out in the world. You make a solution, put it out in the world. You gather feedback from the people who you're co-creating with, and you just continuously iterate. So it's a cycle, and from the standpoint of human-centered design, you're never really done, and it's less about perfection. It's less about trying to reach a state of perfection, and it's more about constantly adjusting and improving based on um, feedback loops. And so, again, that's another mindset, right? Um, we spend a lot of time talking about feedback in my course. <laughs> um, and so that's the process. Um, there are also tools so there are a lot of different tools, many of which have been created for a um, area of human-centered design called service design that provide um, easy entry points and methods for solving problems um, at different junctures and different points. So some commonly used tools are journey maps, systems maps, um, and that have you know, there are, I've got a book that has a hundred of them listed. <laughs> so, um, so that, that, and that, that, um, area of human centered design is actually very well developed and is widely used in other professions and is just now getting attention in legal. So when you hear the phrase legal design, mm -hmm. often folks are referring to elements of service design or visual, um, visual sense making, visual information, um, which is a piece. It's a, it's a part of human centered design, not the whole thing, but a part. So. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, like it, to make it as an aside, you know, your, your description of sort of like the new um, sort of adoption of some of these ideas into legal practice kind of reminds me of uh, Mark Twain's description of Kentucky, right? Everything happens 10 years later there. Um, we're, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the legal profession. Oh, my home state. 
Yeah. It seems like the legal profession is always a little behind sometimes. Um, But it's interesting because what you describe sounds like a much more sophisticated and systematized version of something I think it took me a long time to realize as a lawyer and legal scholar, which was how much lawyering really consists, or good lawyering anyway, in my opinion, consists of listening to the person you're supposed to be helping and understanding what they see the problem as and how to help them work to a resolution of that problem. But I think my own experience as a young lawyer was that, you know, the kind of the hubris of law school and knowledge was really hard to unlearn. And it sounds like part of what you're doing is helping students get there more quickly. And I'm, I'm wondering how you do that. Yeah, uh, the question of the day. So first, let me acknowledge that, yes, um, all of this, well, well, I was exposed to human-centered design in my law practice through clients who I was working with. Mm. And as I started learning about it, I'm like, this is how lawyers should be working. Like, I made the connection immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, you know, been driving me for about 10 years now and really caused me to redesign my own law practice once I made these connections. So yes, I agree with you completely. Like the alignment with really the role of a lawyer and the value that we bring is so on point. Um, you know, <laughs> it's been um, interesting you use the word hubris. Um, I, I agree. And what I attempt to do is stop the calcification mm. before students leave law school. And so by introducing them to these human-centered concepts and helping them see their role from this perspective... I think is a primary way that I help stop the calcification and maybe even reverse some of it. Mm. Um, I think that the real challenge uh, to be honest comes when they leave what they will soon realize was actually a pretty safe place being law school. (laughs) (laughs) I know the irony there is tremendous, but um, Uh, So when they go out into the world and they suddenly are in a place that very likely is not going to support or encourage, um, at least explicitly, um, these things. Mm -hmm. And so how do I help them feel empowered and find ways to do their work in this way um, with the belief that this best serves the client and themselves? And so I really try to focus on that. So while we're talking about all these big ideas and big concepts and how we can change the world, we also talk about, okay, what does this mean when you're sitting at your desk and you get an email from someone? And, Mm -hmm. you know, so we talk about um, practical applications because from my perspective, that's incredibly important that the students see these as tools that have meaning in their work from day one. And, And I ask them to reflect and really think critically um, 
as much as possible while I have their attention. So for instance, the last thing I do with my students, and um, this year the class happens to be all third year students. And so they're all about to leave Vanderbilt and go forth into the world. So their formal legal education for most of them is about to come to an end. And so a challenge I've given them is to think very intentionally about what does their continuous learning plan look like going forward? How are they going to continue to learn and develop their humble curiosity and grow professionally once they leave this setting of formal education? Mm -hmm. And to be very intentional about how they think about that and very practical. What does that look like for them? And so I, I sit and have a, a one-on-one with each student and that's part of what we talk about is how they are going to continue to grow and develop moving forward. And so for me, that's, that's one way I can try to plant seeds that hopefully they will continue to cultivate after they leave and that will help empower and inform them as they move forward. I do have a strong sense from my students that they are very interested in in cultivating a very intentional path. And it may be that my courses kind of self-select, the students self-select who are more interested in these inquiries. Um, But think they're they seem to be very hungry for these tools and so I, I you know I just try to give them as many practical ones as possible and I also will add finally that um, starting all of this on scaffolding on self-awareness which we continually go back to I think is critical as well um, I I don't give them the opportunity to not self-reflect mm-hmm. <laughs> <And> so, um, <laughs> And, um, and if they're not, then I call them on it. Right. So, um, I think that that's critical as well. And that's a habit and we form habits by regularly doing something. So I just, you know, can only hope that they continue. Right. Right. So in your, in your writing on pedagogy, you talk a lot about these ideas more generally, but you also talk more specifically about some particular kinds of uh, exercises and practices that you assign to your students or encourage them to engage in. And I'm thinking of the way you talk about like kind of brainstorming and journaling and other kinds of really kind of focused activities. I was wondering if you could spend a couple minutes like just describing one of the things that you do in teaching mindfulness and problem solving that you think is particularly important or effective? The weekly journaling would be my first choice for something to um, talk about because that really gives me an opportunity. Well, let me back up first. It aligns very well with the work we're doing in the course and giving them an opportunity for self-reflection And from a pedagogical perspective, reflecting back and thinking about what one has just learned, an experience someone has just gone through, 
is a critical element in actually meaningfully learning from that experience. So um, this is something I've learned from the research on pedagogy that I've done. And so I think it helps students make sense of what we're doing. Um, as the teacher, it gives me the opportunity to understand better what the experience they're having, what they're getting, what they might be missing, and to know the student better as well. And I find, too, that as the semester proceeds, the students get very comfortable and just kind of putting it all out there in their <laughs> journal entries. And, of course, there are, you know, these um, are, are confidential. And um, I use Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the great thing about that is I can um, add a comment or an insight as, as I'm reading and um, can end up actually having conversations with students over things that they've written about and shared with me. And so I think it, it serves a real purpose in the student's learning experience and it helps me engage, I think, more meaningfully with the students. So for that reason, I find journaling to be a very powerful tool. And, you know, the, the prompts, I assign a prompt yeah. and it's always based on the work we're doing that week. And so while I have general things I like to cover, um, I've been known to completely throw out the list of prompts I thought I was going to use to, so that we could follow, you know, what, what we're doing at that moment in time and, you know, really engage in the here and now. And, um, and the students, you know, after everyone understands that there will be no footnotes in journal entries, this is not a book report. You will Mm -hmm. write in the first person um, interestingly, I do have to point those things out. I thought mm. when I first started teaching this course, I could just say a journal entry and they would know what that meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I got these very formal, um, footnoted entries, um, in third person. And it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so Let's talk about this. Um, so I think too, that they come to really appreciate having this very free place to write. Um, and that, that having it as a form of expression and, um, yeah. So, and I also, I'm, I'm a lifelong journaler and I've, I have found incredible value in my own life, um, as I've developed and evolved as a professional and as a human from a regular journaling practice. Mm -hmm. And while I don't, um, I definitely don't beat it over the head of my students that this is, that they must do this or this, you know, Um, (laughs) if they don't, then they're, you know, it's somehow bad. Um, I just hope that the experience they have in the class encourages them to, to keep the practice. Okay. So this, this is really fascinating to me because it's something very new and different from certainly what I do in my classes and my own experience as a law student. So I was wondering if you could describe in a kind of more granular fashion, the kind of prompt you would give to your students and sort of what your sort of 
ideal responses or maybe not even that, but so much as sort of your ideal sort of rubric for evaluating the effectiveness of the exercise, perhaps. Yeah. And then maybe even more, like more personally beneficial to me, like I want, I kind of wonder, have you, have you given any thought to like how professors might be able to use similar approaches in doctrinal classes? So I have been thinking about that. I've actually had conversation with a number of different folks at different schools who, um, you know, are interested in that idea, and I have no fully formed ideas on that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I will offer that. Um, I, well, let me, I'm going to um, respond to the first part of your query uh, about the sort of the prompts and more granular level. Yeah. So uh, the journal assignment um, structurally is set up for each student. We have a shared folder in Google Drive, and that's where they submit all of their assignments to me. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, I don't want to chase paper. Two, I think that the students need to be exposed to tools other than Microsoft Word. And um, in my own practice, I found the Google products to actually be quite valuable in collaborating with certain types of clients. So part of it is, too, that I want to expose them to different technology platforms, not because I think they need to learn the Google platform necessarily, but they need to get comfortable moving between platforms and not freak out if someone wants them to do something in something other than Outlook or Microsoft Word. Mm. So there's that piece. Mm. There are always multiple motivations <laughs> for the <laughs> choices I make. Um, so there, yeah, so I um, post the prompt. If it's a short prompt, I just put the entire prompt in Slack, which um, Slack is a team communication platform, and we use that to communicate that's our sole form of communication. Um, so no email in any of my courses. Um, so I share all assignments in Slack and have all communication, written communication with students in Slack. So I will post a short prompt directly in the assignments channel. If it's longer, um, I'll create a Google doc and link to it in the assignments channel. So um, I'm looking, I pulled up a prompt um, that I assigned not too long ago. Um, typically, I ask for a response that is anywhere from 350 to 500 words. Mm. There is no max. So if a student really gets into an idea, I just want them to go. Um, and uh, they seem to never have any problem meeting the minimum. So <laughs> we like words. Um, so this particular prompt was geared to tie in some themes we had been discussing in class with one of the books I had assigned for reading. And often my reading assignments are not necessarily discussed in great detail in a class session. I will use them as um, material for small group discussions or we will tie them in to class themes and topics via written assignments, such as a, as a journal prompt. So in this particular um, prompt, I've, um, I pulled out a few themes that we've been discussing in class, identified them, and 
then ask the class to go to one of the books we're using in the class. This particular book is called The Design of Business by mm. a business professor from Canada, Roger Martin. Huh. And he, um, great book. It's one of the two books I assigned for the course this year, along with a lot of articles. Um, and I posed two specific queries um, pulling from the book in the context of these themes and ask them really just to think about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about the themes, diving into methods and tools that Martin identifies in the book to use for problem solving. Um, I asked them to pull out and identify specific ones and talk to me about how they might be relevant, useful or not. Um, Barton, and in, 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 in this context as well, so this gave me a chance actually to touch on a different couple of different pillars. So talking about tools that might be relevant to problem solving kind of writ large. And then the second part of the query was asking them to identify one thing from the book that they individually felt they could do and use from the start of their legal career to bring human-centered design into their work. So, um, and that, I think, goes to my goal of always wanting to try to bring a very practical and individual focus to Mm. these things so um, that they're walking away, again, with a much more robust toolbox than they Mm. might otherwise. Um, And so then this, and really, there are, as I said, there are no other than responding to the queries. Um, and sometimes that is to say that they disagree with what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's why. Um, I had one student who I, there was um, a prompt that asked them to talk about creativity in a specific way. And um, creativity being another mindset of human centered design. And I have one student who just staunchly denies she is a, has any creative body bone in her body Um, (laughs) and like constantly. And I will tell you, she gave, she presented the most creative response to my prompt and I couldn't resist. I had to point out, I'm like, but this, this, your response is so creative. I'm sorry. Um, so, and you know, in terms of a, a rubric for how um, I do, I, I clearly look to see, are they, are they making some connections? Um, are they engaging thoughtfully in the, the ideas in the material? Does their response reflect that they at least looked at the two pages in the book that they happened to be writing about. (laughs) Um, And what I really hope to see, and this is what I tell them, what I really hope to see is how, how they individually are making sense of this in the context of figuring out what kind of lawyer they want to be. And so always taking it to that, you know, personal place, and, and across the board, I mean, they just knock it out of the park. Mm. Um, and, and it often in very surprising ways. Mm. Um, so I learn something every week. Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that's really cool. So I wanted to kind of picking up on that thread a little bit, I wanted to return to something you mentioned earlier, which was the role of empathy in legal problem solving. Um, And it reminded me of this kind of concept of the, you know, the lawyer's friend, as it were. And and I I have to say, I'm personally interested here. I'm going to be starting to teach professional responsibility for the first time in the spring. And I've been thinking a lot about that lawyer client relationship. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your approach to empathy and how you explain the kind of lawyer's version of empathy to your students and help them understand it. Because I thought what you said was really interesting. My approach to empathy from the lawyer standpoint is 100% informed. Well, 90% informed (laughs) by, by my practice experience. And, and I have, gone on to supplement that information with um, additional research and experience, obviously, since I've been teaching. Um, I still, by the way, am a licensed attorney, but about two years ago, formally closed my practice and moved full-time into the work at Vanderbilt. So from my perspective, I viewed problem-solving with clients as a with, not for, first of all. Mm. So um, I didn't solve clients' problems. I worked with them to solve problems. And as importantly, I came to understand very clearly that my clients had problems sometimes manageable problems, sometimes like big, hairy, wicked problems of which there was a legal element. So my clients didn't have legal problems. Mm. They had much richer problems. (laughs) And and that, that was universal. Like, you know, a dispute over a contract was not about the contract ever. Um, it was about the relationship, right? So, um, So helping my students understand that it is critical to step inside the shoes of the client and try to understand the client's problem as broadly as possible and in ways that might not seem evident if you're only thinking about how do I solve a legal problem. Right. And understanding as well that sometimes there isn't a legal solution. And very often, the legal solution is not the ideal solution from the client standpoint. And so getting very comfortable, I think, first with a lot of ambiguity and learning to listen very deeply and also becoming very skilled and asking great questions um, are critical to assuming that role, I think, of empathetic co-problem solver. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's, 
that's what we talk about when we talk about, you know, uh, the lawyer's role and where and how empathy um, fits in with that. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so Kat, it's been fantastic talking with you today. And I wanted to kind of end this conversation by asking you a somewhat tangential question. So I know that you're really interested in poetry as well as in the law. And I was wondering if you could just offer a few thoughts on how, if at all, poetry has informed your approach to lawyering and specifically your approach to teaching the sort of values of lawyering. Wow. Okay. I'll I'll draw, I'll try to draw some connections here. Um, Yes. I find great power in solace, both in poetry as an art form. And so I begin every day reading poetry. Um, I endeavor to write poetry um, in a secret place that (laughs) may not ever be shared with the world. But um, for me, the, the power of poetry is in part the power of words to convey things often very unexpected and to make very unexpected connections Mm -hmm. and to invoke incredible emotion in such simple form Um, to tell a story in a way that simply cannot be told otherwise and for me, poetry is very meditative. Um, it can also be very challenging. Um, I sometimes, oh, I definitely choose the poetry I read based on what I, how I want that day to begin. And sometimes I do choose something that I know is going to challenge me um, because I think that's, I, I need that little eye of the tiger to get the day going. Um, sometimes I just need things to be very, very calm. And so I will um, choose a different kind of, of poem that day. Um, you know, connecting it to the values of lawyering. And do I have that? Is that kind of your second point? Is that, am I add it accurately? Sure. Yeah, no, take, take, take it where you want to go. I think one of the great values in having what I would call a poetry practice or really any creative practice, I'm going to make it a little more encompassing, um, is just helping us to see and think a little bit differently than we might require be required to do otherwise professionally. And it, it is in those differences and the intersections of those differences that um, real creativity can happen. And, and I believe that's the same for practicing law. Mm-hmm. And so helping us just see and look, and, and um, I think it also helps us develop empathy, frankly. When you, when you really get inside of a poem, um, you, know, you, are, you are living that perspective of that poem and seeing the world through the eyes 
of, of that poem. Mm. And so I think that can be an exercise in active empathy as well. And yeah. <laughs> That's great. I love it. That's actually a really fantastic idea, like poetry as a way of learning empathy. So Kat, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've, I've learned a lot from this conversation and uh, I must say I'm jealous of the students who get to teach your class, get, get to take your class. I don't think it's a um, mistake that you said students who get to teach my class. Because <laughs> I will say this. Um, I learn from my students every day. And that is one of the things I absolutely love about teaching law students is um, they are so bright and, uh, you know, um, I, it's just, I'm so grateful for the work I get to do. Absolutely. And, and before we go, mm-hmm. um, a little, a little quid pro quo here. Um, so I don't know when it's going to happen, Brian, but I am going to launch my podcast. <laughs> you do it. So, um, and my podcast, it has a name, even though it hasn't happened yet, a curious lawyer. And you must promise and agree to appear on my podcast. And then I get to ask you a lot of questions. Of yeah? course. It would be my pleasure. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Thanks. Kat, it's so great. I look forward to, to talking to you soon. Same.